Conjuring nostalgia and memories out of bread and jam, French toast and skinned knees? No. During the summer months, just like an ocean liner, the house required birds of passage and a large staff. In short, it was what is properly referred to as a bonne maison. This shameless, snobbish understatement referred to the handful of houses around the world on that same grand scale, combining luxury, perfect taste, and a refined way of life. In the same way they would have said grande famille or grand hôtel, the servants in such houses referred to them as grande maison, and without describing them or defining what they had in common, these experts could have rattled off a list on Corsica, in Mexico, in Tuscany, or on Corfu an inventory far more private than the host of palatial European hotels touted everywhere in travel guides and magazines. These houses always had dumbwaiters, walk-in cold rooms, bellboards for the upstairs rooms, vans for grocery shopping, cupboards for breakfast trays, a kitchen for the cooks, a pantry for the butlers, a laundry room with linen closets, a room with a copper sink for arranging flowers and storing vases, cellars, storerooms, and extensive servants' quarters. From these houses were banished all dishwashers, microwave ovens, televisions in lounges, TV dinners, easygoing informality, and any form of casual attire. One of the chief criteria of a good house was the beauty of the place, from which the patina of time must have effaced all triviality, a requirement that disqualified even the grandest of modern houses. Not even historical monuments were allowed into the fold. Those stately homes, whose owners, rarely wealthy, often found themselves the guardians of traditions it was their duty to uphold, even at the cost of bankruptcy. For unlike a Chatelaine, The master of a good house devoted his culture, his fortune, and his savoir-vivre to the pleasure he offered his guests. His objective? To make them forget all material cares, and thus freely enjoy the beauty of his house, his works of art, his bountiful table, and sprightly conversation in good company. Plainly put, in a good house, Chambermaids unpacked and repacked, with a great flurry of tissue paper, the suitcases of guests, who found their rooms provided with pretty sheets, mineral water, fruit, flowers, and a safe, as well as matches, pencils, and writing paper, all embossed with the name of the house. But most important, the guests were not obliged to do anything, not to play sports or go sightseeing, even though all that and more was available and easily arranged, should anyone wish it. The only compulsory ritual was mealtime, like prayers at a lay convent, where one's thoughts were otherwise free to roam at will. And Lagapante clearly fit this long and curious definition of a good house, so handsomely did this magical place succeed in halting the passage of time which hung suspended in a bygone age of breathtaking yet unpretentious luxury. During our family discussions at the dinner table about potential house guests for the summer,
If Marie or I ever dared agree with our father's gentle criticism, our mother, like the sensitive soul she really was, would immediately go on the attack, pointing out that at La Gapante she had to be more like the manager of a luxury hotel than merely the mistress of the house. Once again, Marie and I would be relieved to find that when it came to running her house, she spoke with her usual commanding confidence. Then we'd flatter her shamelessly to satisfy her thirst for recognition and bring us at last to our favorite headache, casting the guests. Increasingly dispirited by the lackluster impression left by our last few summers, my father would finally sound sincere when he asked us to suggest ideas for new table companions. For if my mother was reluctant to go looking for new faces, it was probably to avoid admitting to herself.